Well, this morning's sermon will be a bit more topical in nature. We're going to be considering Paul's words in Philippians 4, among a few other texts, uh, and what they have to say about Christian contentment. Contentment has been one of those perennial struggles uh, for all people since the fall of man. In fact, you could look at the history of sin as one episode after another of people failing to remain content with what the Lord had given them, to remain content in the circumstances that he had placed them. Think about this for a moment. Adam and Eve's failure to be content in the garden with what the Lord had given them given them at that stage initiated a long series of the same kinds of episodes. Uh, think about Cain and his envy with his brother, uh, Abram and Sarah impatiently waiting for the promised son, Esau not being content with his birthright and in fact despising it, Joseph's brothers not being content with their circumstance and situation, Israel in the wilderness, Israel when she got to the land. We could go on and on with numerous stories of people failing to be content in the circumstances the Lord had placed them. Uh, people have been struggling to remain content long before the age of commercials, shopping malls, and social media. But let's take a step back and consider for a moment what it is that every person is seeking. What are you seeking? If you were to go and ask that question to the man on the street, what is the purpose of your life? What is life all about? What's the answer that you think he or she would give you? Most people would give you some kind of version of doing what makes you happy, right? Living the fulfilled life, the pursuit of happiness, finding your bliss in life, living the good life. Uh, whatever makes you happy, or maybe they might include uh, their spouse and children, whatever makes your family happy, your loved ones happy. Uh, these are the typical answers given about the point of life. We see this in movies and pop songs, you know, live now while you're young, live life to the fullest, enjoy everything while you can. But let's think about that answer for just a moment. Seeking happiness as the point of life. Is it at odds with the Christian faith? Does God want you to be happy? And if so, in what sense does God want you to be happy, to live the happy, good life? St. Augustine said, All men agree in desiring the last end, which is happiness. Okay, the last end meaning the telos, the ultimate goal for mankind. In other words, all men agree on this, that people desire fulfillment or happiness as their ultimate aim in life. Consider the first question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? What's man's purpose? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Okay, we could rephrase the last part of that, enjoy him as delight in God, be satisfied, or even be happy in God. Okay, the Catechism is saying that God created us to find happiness and fulfillment in Him. Here's another 
Augustine quote, a famous one from uh, the Confessions. Okay, the Confessions is one, written as one long prayer to God. And he says this to God, you have made us for yourself. Okay? You've made us for yourself, God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Christians from Augustine to Thomas Aquinas to even the Westminster divines have defined man's purpose as finding happiness in God. Yes, glorifying God, but together with that, man fulfilling his purpose by finding happiness in God. As a creature made in God's image, you were made to find ultimate fulfillment in God. Unbelievers also have this desire, don't they? They desire to be fulfilled, to be happy in an ultimate sense, because they too are humans created in the image of God. But they seek to fulfill this desire, as many of us do, by means of lesser goods, okay? by means of created things. Augustine talks about sin as a kind of disordering of uh, goods. God is the ultimate and supreme good. He is goodness and happiness itself. And yet he gives us these good gifts, lesser goods, created things, spouse, children, friends, food, clothing, to enjoy from his hand. And when we make these lesser goods a higher priority than God, we're seeking from a created thing only what God can give us. We're disordering the goods. We're getting them out of alignment. We're shifting our priorities. True and ultimate happiness, perfect happiness, is found in knowing and loving God. And that is your true purpose. Scripture teaches us about the future hope of one day seeing God and being like Him in a sense. Uh, Being like God who is this ultimate good. The the perfect good that completely satisfies all desires as we saw in in Psalm 16 in the meditation this morning. Uh, Listen to a couple passages here. 1 John 3 says, Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Okay, this is the beatific vision. We're going to see God, this beautiful vision of the ultimate good. And John's saying, yes, we're being redeemed now. Okay, we're being saved now, but ultimately we have this future hope that we're going to be changed. We're going to be glorified like Christ is glorified because we'll see Him face to face. Uh, the psalmist kind of picks up on this in a, in a shadowy way in, in Psalm 17. He says, as for me, I shall behold your face, that is God's face, in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Okay, when we see God, we will be satisfied because we'll be like him and we will enjoy pleasures at his right hand forevermore. So man was made to find ultimate joy and satisfaction and happiness in God. It should be clear by now that we're using the term happiness in a deeper and more substantial sense than how people commonly use the word today. Happiness in this sense does not refer to a temporary mood or a mere passing emotion. Rather, it's a deep satisfaction in God, one that runs deeper than mere emotion or feeling. And this satisfaction that we have in God, or that we can have in God, 
uh, gives us a kind of sufficiency that sustains us regardless of our outward circumstances. Okay, think about martyrs. Think about Christians who've gone through uh, you know, tremendous, difficult circumstances uh, and are able to maintain a, a joy uh, in the midst of those circumstances. Okay, that's the kind of contentment that we're reflecting on this morning. And that gets us to Paul's description of contentment in our epistle lesson. I'll read it again, just 11 through 13 of chapter 4 in Philippians. Paul says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Okay, Paul, if you didn't know, is writing this letter from a prison cell. Paul is sitting in an ancient prison writing to a church that he planted in Greece to encourage them and thank them for the gifts that he sent them. If you're in the ancient world and you're in prison, they're not going to put you on a meal plan. They're not going to feed you. Uh, you. You rely on your friends, your family, uh, acquaintances to bring you food uh, so that you can live. And Paul's thanking them for bringing him this gift and bringing gifts for the other churches. And this is the situation that Paul is in when he says, I've learned how to be content. He knows how to be brought low. He is in prison after all. He's dependent on other people's needs or other people to provide for him, uh, to bring him food and, these, and meet these basic needs. And he tells us he's learned the secret of being content in any circumstance. And here's the source that he gives us. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul's contentment was something that he learned. It's a joy that he has regardless of outward circumstances, whether he's in a jail cell uh, or out and about proclaiming the gospel. Uh, he has this joy regardless of his outward circumstances because the source of the contentment is not the circumstance. The source is God himself. Before we unpack all of that, let's uh, step back for a moment and clear up some common misconceptions of contentment. Okay, let's think about some things that contentment is not. Contentment is not pretending. Being content does not mean you're, you cover up any difficulty that you're undergoing with a smile and pretend that things are not hard. This is what, what we might call Pollyanna Christianity, or the secular version of this, uh, the power of positive thinking. If you just think really positive thoughts all the time, you will be happy. Uh, according to this view, if you just ignore, ignore hard things or pretend that nothing is wrong, you can achieve happiness. And that's not the biblical picture of contentment. Here are a few arguments why. Paul himself does not hesitate to describe reality accurately. He doesn't pretend that hardships are easy. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul gives this uh, resume of suffering. He gives a long list of all the difficulties and suffering that he's, he's been through. And he finishes the list with this. Apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Hey, Paul admits he's under all this pressure. He has a kind of anxious 
concern uh, for the churches, and it's a hardship. He's not afraid to describe reality. In the next chapter, he talks about his thorn in the flesh and says, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Strikingly, Paul includes these hardships that he undergoes within the scope of things that he's content with. Hard circumstances are something that Paul is content with. So whatever contentment is, it can't mean ignoring or failing to experience anxiety, anguish, or sorrow. Jesus, surely the ultimate picture of the contented man, in the Garden of Gethsemane, in Matthew 26, says he was sorrowful and troubled. Jesus says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Hey, we could point to numerous examples in the Psalms and the prophets where lament has an appropriate and fitting place in the life of God's people. And it's not at odds with the command to be content in the Lord. So contentment is not pretending. Secondly, contentment's not killing any kind of ambition or longing. Just as contentment's not pretending to be happy all the time, it's also not a resolve to feel nothing uh, at all times, no matter the circumstances. We could call that a kind of stoic model of contentment. The Stoics were known for their attempt to rid themselves of any emotion, to be above any kind of emotion. Biblical contentment is not extinguishing any emotions in the midst of trial. The previous references we just discussed, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Paul, are are, uh, proof enough of that, that expressing emotion is not at odds with godliness or contentment necessarily. Similarly, longing and desire for different circumstances are not in themselves discontentment. Just because you long for a different situation doesn't mean that you're necessarily discontent. Paul tells several of the churches that he longs to see them or longs to be with them in person. He has these desires for a new set of circumstances, and that's not in any way saying that Paul is discontent. The psalmists and the prophets long for justice and righteousness, for God to act and for things to change. Indeed, prayer itself includes a kind of longing for change, doesn't it? The Christian life will always include a kind of longing for our heavenly dwelling, our future hope. Until we see God face to face, we'll never fully be satisfied in this life. So there's a proper and and good place for desiring change, desiring improvement, and contentment does not exclude that. So contentment is not killing all longing and desires. Thirdly, contentment's not attaining the right circumstances. This is most in line with what we hear in the world's version of contentment. The happy life, according to the world, is about finding your bliss, okay? finding your sweet spot. If you could get the right job, or if you could have the right income, or the right house, or the right spouse, you can have a happy life. Okay, we all know that this, of course, is bogus. We are all willing to admit those things will not bring happiness, and yet we so easily fall into this kind of reasoning, don't we? We can say with our head knowledge, of course money and job and relationships and stuff won't ultimately fulfill me, and yet we continue to look for fulfillment in those things. 
Going back to Augustine, there's a way to enjoy God through his good gifts. Okay? God wants us to enjoy created things, but too often we get those things switched up. We think we'd be happier, more fulfilled if we could get a little bit more of this or a little bit more of that or have the right circumstances. True contentment does not come through getting the right outward circumstances just right. Paul in prison, no less, says, in any and every circumstance, I've learned to be content. Paul can say, I'm content with hardships. I'm content with weakness. It's not about getting the right circumstances. All right, so we've talked about some things that contentment is not. Uh, What is contentment? True contentment, here's uh, a stab at a definition. True contentment is an inward satisfaction that that is a result of trusting and resting in God's providence and goodness, regardless of outward circumstances. Let me repeat that. True contentment is an inward satisfaction that is a result of trusting and resting in God's providence and his goodness, regardless of outward circumstances. All right, let's unpack that a little bit. We talked about this inward delight, satisfaction, running deeper than a kind of cotton candy happiness, a mere emotion. It's a deep satisfaction that finds its source in God. Contentment looks beyond my present, my present circumstances. It's grounded in something bigger and greater than the current circumstances. All right, so I've said contentment comes as a result of trusting and resting in God's providence. What is God's providence? Scripture teaches that all things, all things, whether good or bad, that happen in your life, ultimately come from God's hand. Everything that happens to you comes from God's hand in an ultimate sense. And they're given for God's purpose in your life. What is that? Well, your maturation in Christ, being conformed to Christ's image is your purpose. After Job lost his children, his property, his health, we're told in Job chapter 2, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Shall we not receive good from God and bad, evil? Now remember, the text tells us that Satan brought these afflictions. Satan's the one who went and asked of the Lord, can I test Job? And then we're told a storm came. And a storm is actually what resulted in his children uh, being killed. And his property and his servants were destroyed by invaders. Okay, so you have these different levels going on in Job. Which, Which is it? Which... Which of these things brought about Job's calamity? Was it the storm? Was it the devil? Job says, ultimately, it was God. Okay, There's primary and secondary causes to these things. God is the primary cause of all things. Nothing can happen apart from him. Thomas Watson, the, the 17th century English Puritan, put it this way. He says, whoever brings an affliction to us, whoever it is, it is God who sends it. Okay, however it comes to me, ultimately, 
It is God who sends it. Now, we need to be clear, God is not the author of evil, right? God is not uh, causing people to sin, but God is sovereign over everything. And that includes your circumstances, both the good things that happen to you and the trials and hardships that come about. Okay, so we, we need to trust and rest in God's uh, providence and his goodness. Okay, it doesn't come just a result. Contentment doesn't come just as a result of merely believing that God is sovereign. Okay, you can believe that God is in control of everything and be really mad about it, right? You can believe that all things come from God's hand and be really mad at God. We need to trust that the one who orders all things is also good. Right? We need to believe in his goodness. This is what Eve failed to believe. Eve knew that God was in charge, but she was deceived into believing that God was withholding something from her. Uh, that he ultimately did not have her best interests in mind. Okay? The serpent deceived her into thinking, God's holding this back because he doesn't want you to, to know like he knows. And she believed that. She knew he was in control, but she didn't believe that he was good. She interpreted God's withholding of a good thing from her as God's lack of concern for her. That God had some kind of ill will toward Eve. And how many of us do the same? God, why did you not give me this good thing that I wanted? I worked so hard for that promotion. I did honest work with integrity. Why did you not let me have it? Or why did I not get into that school or get that job? I wanted it so badly. Or Lord, we want children. Okay, You say children are a blessing, they're a good thing. Why can we not have children, Lord? In the midst of these challenging circumstances, do you believe that your Heavenly Father is good? Do you believe that He's working all of these things for your good? God's word teaches us that God is good. He is just and righteous in all his ways. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Or Psalm 100, for the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Jesus talking about our heavenly father, in Matthew chapter 7 says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Okay, God is good, and he knows what is good. He's a good father who knows what's best, and he does what is good for his people. Always. Always. Even when it doesn't appear that way to us. Do you believe that? Do you trust he is good in difficult circumstances? So tying his, his goodness and his sovereignty together, Romans 8.28, this is a promise to hold on to. And we know that for those who love God, okay, that's you, for those who love God, all things, not just some things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Okay, becoming like Jesus is the highest good for our life. We could even say that this is the same thing as contentment, right? 
Jesus is the blessed man of Psalm 1. He's the blessed man of the Beatitudes. Okay, blessedness is just another synonym of happiness. Okay, he's the blessed, contented man. And being conformed to his image, according to Romans 8, is what God is doing with all things. He's working these things out so that we become conformed to Christ's image. Bad things are not good. Okay? Cancer, death in the family, evil that is done against you, those are not good things. Okay? We're not called to believe that they're good in and of themselves. God is not asking us to call everything good. These are things that are a result of the fall. We don't have to pretend that bad circumstances are good in and of themselves. But God promises to work those bad things for our good. He promises to work all things for your good. To conform us to Christ. And notice too that Paul says we know that all things work together. Not that we feel it. Not that we fully understand it. But we know it. Okay, We trust God's promise even when it doesn't feel like it. We don't have to be able to make sense of all the connections. We simply have to trust this promise that God is orchestrating all, all of this for our good and for his glory. Okay, trusting in God's good and sovereign purposes is how true contentment can be attained, and it's regardless of outward circumstances. Let's talk about that, outward circumstances. James 1 can say, consider it pure joy when you encounter various trials. Hey, consider it joy when you encounter hardships, trials. Why joy? Because God is working to make you mature. Working to make you complete is what James says. To make you perfect. Be joyful in the midst of hard circumstances because of God's good purpose for you. He's working out this purpose in you. Hebrews 10 is a good example of this. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says to the church, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Okay, these Christians joyfully accepted their property being stolen, a hard outward circumstance, but joyfully because they knew God's promises and his character. 2 Corinthians 9, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all contentment in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Okay, all, all things, all times, all circumstances, the object of our happiness, the source of our joy, is beyond our circumstances. It's Christ. As a Christian, your outward circumstances are not the last word about you. Whether things are generally going well for you right now or you're experiencing intense trials. Okay, those outward circumstances are not the end of the story for your life. The Lord is preparing you for an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. Your true source of joy and satisfaction is beyond your present circumstances. Now that we've defined contentment, let's talk briefly about some of the mechanics. How does this actually work? How do I pursue this? How do I obtain it? We'll, think, we'll consider a couple of ways that, uh, that prevent us 
from contentment and then how to, how to pursue it. So what pre- prevents us from being content? What are the things that we do that get in the way? First off, complaining. Okay, if you want to kill contentment, just start complaining. <laughs> Discontentment is a kind of pride that says, I know what is best for my life, and whatever God is doing in my life with my current circumstances is not best. And complaining is the expression of that discontentment. I mentioned earlier that Paul's not afraid to describe reality. Okay? He, he talks about the hard things that are going on, that are happening to him. But it's always situated in the context of God's good purposes for him. Okay? Paul knows how to put that in perspective with what God is doing for him and for the church. He situated his suffering and his weaknesses in the context of God's master plan for his church. And he boasts in his weakness to magnify God's grace, not to indulge in a pity party. 2 Corinthians 11 is not the first century equivalent of airing out all of your problems and grievances on Facebook. Paul's not publishing this public diary of how hard things are for him so that he can get attention from everybody. Complaining is a failure to recognize and give thanks for God's goodness. Israel complained in the wilderness when she forgot all that God had done for her. God has brought us here to slay us. That's what Israel says. The people said that. They complained about food, leaders, enemies, forgetting about God's most recent deliverance out of Egypt and his provision of food, his provision of leaders and military success. Complaining has a way of sowing more discontentment and more complaining. God hates complaining. He sent fire to consume the camp, fiery serpents, and ultimately he denied the promised land to a generation in Israel because they continued to complain. Romans 1 teaches that failure to give thanks in gratitude led mankind into deeper and darker sin. Complaining and grumbling about your circumstances only leads to further misery and sin. So complaining kills contentment. Secondly, comparison. Another pitfall that that prevents us from having contentment is comparison. When we uh, fall into the trap of thinking our circumstances will bring us true joy, in this case we're looking at another's circumstances. When we get what we want and we're left empty, since we've, as we've already seen, circumstances are not able to bring true satisfaction. With technologies like social media, it's very easy to fall into the trap of comparing our circumstances to others. Whether it's other people's relationships, their wardrobes, their houses, their career success, what their children are doing, or just what a good time everyone else seems to be having. It's easy to sow discontentment by trying to measure ourselves against others, trying to compare ourselves. We can live our lives chasing after better circumstances and never being fulfilled. In high school, it's once I'm able to drive, like those older upperclassmen, then, then things will be going really well. Or once I graduate, then my life is going to be perfect. Or once I get married or have children or get the right job, or have the perfect retirement. It goes on and on in an endless chase. If I could do the thing that I want to do, 
that he or she is doing, then I will be happy. Chasing after these set of circumstances is like chasing after a mirage. We get there and we find out it doesn't actually provide what we thought it would. And this leads us to the third thing that prevents contentment, which is really the root of discontentment, and that's covetousness. Being short-sighted, disordering the goods like we talked about, seeking from created things what only God can give. Paul says covetousness is idolatry, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Scripture talks about the love of money as a kind of trap. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And money is not evil in and of itself, we know, but the love of money, chasing after a little more, is a root of all kinds of evil. Worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator leads to despair and death. Complaining, comparison, and covetousness all prevent us from having true contentment and leaving us unfulfilled. So how do we pursue it? Okay, we need to avoid those things. What do we need to actually do to be content? How do we pursue it? Well, first off, we need to practice. Okay, Paul says that he learned contentment. Just because you are a Christian doesn't mean you're automatically content. I think we can all resonate with that. But for some reason, we think it should just be automatic somehow. Uh, That it's more a product of maybe the right kind of personality. But Paul says, I had to learn contentment. I learned contentment. It takes practice and effort to grow in every circumstance. And we have to obey his commands, trusting God's promises in every circumstances and obeying. Every situation or trial that comes your way is another opportunity to practice. Every time you experience a hardship or a difficult circumstance, this is your time to practice contentment. This is your pop quiz to practice trusting the Lord and doing what is required. Another uh, English Puritan, Jeremiah Burroughs, talks about the duty of the present circumstance. Okay, and what he means is, instead of first asking the Lord, how do I get out of this hardship? How do I get out of this difficult situation? Or get a new set of circumstances? Trust that God has placed you there okay, for his good purposes in your life. And ask, Lord, what do you want me to do? What's my duty in the present circumstance? Am I doing what's required of me? What does obedience look like in my current situation? Contentment is a gift from the Lord, but it's connected to obedience, to pleasing God. We we read earlier from Ecclesiastes 2, it said there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. That God gives enjoyment in hardships, in the toil, to the one who pleases him. It's like the old song says, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. If you're struggling With discontentment, a question to ask yourself is, am I being obedient to what God requires of me in my present circumstances? 
Am I trusting and obeying in the current situation? Again, it's not wrong to pray for new circumstances, but it is wrong to shirk your duties while you're waiting on the Lord. We practice contentment by trusting and obeying in every circumstance. Secondly, we need to give thanks. If grumbling sows discontentment, we could also say the opposite of grumbling, gratitude, sows contentment. Part of learning contentment is confessing our discontentment and then giving thanks to God. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Going back to what we said about God's goodness, Eve interpreted God's plan in a negative light. She wasn't giving thanks in her current circumstance because she thought God was withholding something from her. Jeremiah Burroughs again says, make a good interpretation of God's ways towards you. Part of giving thanks is interpreting what God's doing in your life as stemming from his goodness and his kindness. Make a good interpretation of what God is doing in your life. If you're struggling with your circumstances, thank God for the things he's given you. Recount his faithfulness to you in your life up to this point. One writer put it this way, discontentment counts its grievances, contentment counts its blessings. Don't keep a list of grievances against God. Rather, keep in mind all the blessings he has bestowed and trust his promises for your future hope. Lastly, if we want to find contentment, we need to practice, we need to give thanks, and we need to look in the right place. Paul says the secret of contentment is the source of his contentment. Paul says, I have learned the secret to contentment. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Look beyond your circumstances and look unto Christ. Whether you have plenty or you are hungry, whether you have abundance or you have need, Look to Christ for strength. Okay, we look to Christ by looking in his word and looking to his promises. Psalm 1, the blessed man, the happy man, is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. He delights in God's word. Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 119, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Jeremiah 17 talks about the blessed man, like similar to Psalm 1. It says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. Hey, the content man is like a tree whose source of life is the river. It can handle hard circumstances. It can handle bad weather, changing weather, uh, because its source is this endless supply. It's not looking to the daily changing weather for its life. Its life source is beyond those things. The Valley of Vision puts it this way, whatever a man trusts in, From that, he expects happiness. Meditate on the Lord as he has revealed himself in his word. Rightly order your desires and do not seek from people, circumstances, or things what God alone can give you. So contentment comes from maintaining a kingdom perspective. 
In our gospel lesson, Jesus tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. You have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into Christ's kingdom of light. You have the hope of a glorious eternal inheritance. Contentment comes when we are walking by faith and obedience, seeking to please God in the present circumstances, applying the truth of our future hope into our present lives in love towards God and neighbor. This isn't just a suck it up and push through kind of theology. We're to seek comfort from the comforter. Christ is truly our source of strength. Cast your cares on Christ. Ask him for help. Uh, Pray for supernatural strength. God is actively working in us here and now and for us in this pursuit of happiness in him. Returning to Augustine, true ultimate happiness, full satisfaction and joy will be ours when we see Christ face to face. In this life, we can participate in that future satisfaction. We can have satisfaction and contentment in the Lord here and now. We can experience true contentment, but we'll continue to long for that future state in this life. Hebrews 12 says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Like Christ, we endure hardships and hard circumstances in this life, but we can experience true happiness and joy in the Lord because our hope is set on this future reality. So do not lose heart in the midst of hard circumstances. Lift your eyes from your present circumstances and look to the Lord where true joy and satisfaction is found. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.